Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In this special bonus episode, Nat Segnit reads from his debut novel, Pub Walks in Underhill Country. Nat's book takes the inventive form of a walking guide, and the 15 rambles included not only chart good pubs, convenient conveniences and local curiosities, but also the unravelling of his titular hero's mind, not to mention his marriage to his beloved wife, Sunita. So, without further ado, over to Nat. My name is Nat Segnet. I'm going to be reading from Pub Walks in Underhill Country, and it's my great pleasure to be bringing the work of the watercolourist, rambler and guidebook writer, Graham Underhill, to the wider public he deserves. Road walking, as I have often explained to Sunita, has its advantages, and it's worth noting the basic mutual courtesies it is the duty of both ramblers and motorists to observe. First, unless you're approaching a bend, always walk on the right-hand side of the road. This allows the rambler and oncoming motorists to establish eye contact in good time for the pass. Second, practice empathy. Ramblers should remember that behind the wheel, they might find brightly coloured rainwear, sudden movement or partial nudity distracting to the proper operation of the vehicle. Third, ramblers are not horses. Depending on the width of the road and proximity of oncoming traffic, motorists should of course give the rambler a respectful berth while remembering that he, she is highly unlikely suddenly to fall over or rear up and plunge boot first through the windscreen. <laughs> We're walkers, remember, we can walk slowing to a crawl or executing an exaggerated swerve into the outside lane is as likely to be read as sarcasm as a safety procedure. Aside from the obvious benefits of a bituminous walking surface, many minor roads, roofed like Gospel Oak Lane in ancient trees, offer an equally if not more attractive natural environment than the fields to either side, and given the proper fulfilment of the motorist rambler contract, there's no reason to think of roads as anything more hazardous than exceptionally well-maintained footpaths. Walk 1. Mulvern to Ledbury. Start by turning right out of the main entrance of Mulvern Link Railway Station. Properly equipped walkers should note that there are often teenagers smoking in the car park here. While their presence can be intimidating, keep your eyes on the route ahead and you should escape with nothing so much as a snide remark about the gaiters, insulated jacket or carbon composite walking pole without which no attempt on high ground is advisable. Turn right and walk up the busy main road for half a mile. Turn right again on Horny Old Road, and shortly afterwards, at a pair of field maples, under which it may interest readers to know I first asked Sunita to marry me, take a left uphill along Trinity Road. At a fork, bear left along North Malvern Road, in a short while passing on your right, a photographer's studio, Photography by David, whose services it was my pleasure to retain when, almost exactly a year after that first stab under the winter naked maples on Horny Old Road, Sunita finally agreed to become the second Mrs Underhill, in spirit if not technically in name. At a gap in the wall on your left, climb steps into dense tree cover. Emerging into a municipal car park, turn sharply left onto a broad, stony track by an information board, Walkers venturing onto the ridge before sunrise should be aware that certain activities have been known to take place in this car park under cover of night. The police have been informed, but in the unlikely event that you do come across potentially multiple figures with their backs to you, intent on a vehicle that, although parked, 
may be rocking. Rest assured that passing ramblers will be the last thing on their minds, and a good rule of thumb this while we're at it, keep your eyes fixed on the path ahead. Follow this attractive route, giving views over Great Morven, for half a mile before turning sharp right at a stone indicator marked North Hill. Completing this first climb, you might like to strip off a layer or two. In conditions liable at once to be cold and productive of considerable amounts of internal warmth, I find a stormproof tri-climate jacket with removable inner fleece gives a good level of flexibility, especially when worn over a good quality technical t-shirt, heavily peached for comfort, and treated with antibacterials to reduce odour. Mind you, that motionless afternoon last June, Sunita and I did the walkers newlyweds, Sunita sported nothing but a summer dress, and while I had to frown at the flimsy silver ballet shoes she insisted on wearing in lieu of walking boots, she looked lovely as summer itself, free and unencumbered and light on her feet as our shadows stretched like Giacometti figures across the coal. Continue towards the Worcestershire Beacon. You should be aware that this is a popular spot with tourists. If I take particular satisfaction in the enduring popularity, in the face of more immediate gratifications, of hill-walking as a truly democratic pastime, I am only taking my place in a tradition that dates back to the romantic ideal of nature as a category free of the distortions of privilege and inequality. It was on common land that William Wordsworth daily read with most delight the passions of mankind, saw most clearly into the depths of human souls, souls that appear to have no depth at all to careless eyes. But there are limits. Would Wordsworth, one wonders, have considered it careless to impute depthlessness to a soul that insists not only on sitting on the toposcope, but on singing Angels by Robbie Williams at the top of his voice, oblivious both to his fortissimo and nearly avant-garde tunelessness by virtue of the earphones piping the original into his inconsiderate head? Seekers after the calm that nature breathes among the hills and groves may prefer to strike on southwards, following the course of the ancient Shire Ditch. It was here, on a wintry walk the November before last, that I finally and definitively wore Sunita's resistance down. Before picking her up at the station, I'd stopped in at our old haunt, the Nag's Head, despite its lack of an apostrophe, a gem of a pub offering a range of well-kept local ales, but when push came to shove, she accepted my proposal almost before I had summoned the courage, Dutch or otherwise, to make it. Yes, she breathed, and softly shut her eyes. At 46, I was nearly 15 years Sunita's senior, and in all honesty some distance shorter of the male physical ideal than she was of the female. But I had persistence in my favour, and as a senior council officer, well-regarded local watercolourist, and author of six successful self-published walking guides, I represented a degree of stability and social standing to which, by her own admission, Sunita had long aspired. As my good friend, the local poet, Alan Oakshot, puts it, we walk on lonely paths until they meet. A little less than a mile after the gentler crest of Summer Hill, the route bends right and descends through maturing turkey oaks to enter the appealing hamlet of Upper Wyke. Turn left along Beacon Road, and left again at the car park at the junction with West Mulvan Road, if needs must, taking advantage of the well-presented public toilets, and cross the busy B4218 to climb concrete steps by a metal rail. Hereafter, the path climbs steadily upwards, and you may feel, as my wife certainly did, Perseverance Hill well-named as you labour towards its 1,066-foot, or 325-metre, peak. Climb again to reach Jubilee, and shortly afterwards Pinnacle Hill, 
to receive ample compensation for your efforts. I have often thought, scouting the walks for this guide, that I am not so much walking as mapping the paths of my mind, or, conversely, thinking with my body, much as Wordsworth extemporised Tintin Abbey while taking the walk it describes, even if, to do that now, you'd have to walk along the A466, which is let down by poor verging and frequently so busy with lorries taking a shortcut to the M48 that you'd need a pair of Boots' excellent muffles wax earplugs to extemporise so much as a shopping list. After Black Hill, the path descends steadily before veering right to rejoin West Malvern Road. At the junction of this ancient salt route with the often heavily congested A449, you might like to stop for a formal lunch at the Malvern Hills Hotel, or alternatively, pop across to the refreshment hut opposite for a flapjack or a piece of fruit. Warm Cornish pasties are also available, as are bacon baps, but on perusal of my stool, Sunita has pronounced me borderline gluten intolerant, so when peckish I tend to stick to more tolerable grains, such as the spelt found in Dr. Karg's delicious seeded crisp breads. Cross the road, and to the right of the car park, pass through a gate to ascend steeply through trees. Turn sharp left at the summit, and keep going for roughly three quarters of a mile until you reach a circular stone waymark like a frozen wheel of fortune. Follow the arrow-marked gullet quarry. Turn left at a crossing of ways, descend to the quarry, strip off all but your underpants, and dive into a deep, glassily green pool whose spring-fed freshness is guaranteed to put paid to the most galling of earthly concerns, even if only one of you is brave enough to take the plunge. To be fair to Sunita, the water is exceptionally cold, and, as the numerous warning signs indicate, can cause sudden cramps which could lead to drowning. Nothing on God's earth can compare to the feeling emerging from a wild dip that the very essence of you has been renewed, and to swim in the embrace of the quarry's curving rock face is to feel, for all the billion tiny needles in your blood, tantalisingly close to what it means to be alive. But I am an experienced swimmer. Every year, scores of people lose their lives entering or walking near uninvigilated waters. The gullet, for example, is not only cold and serviced by a notoriously slippery footpath, but littered at its deepest points with treacherous quarrying equipment, such as derricks and squirrel cage conveyors, on which the unwitting diver, blinded by the murk, could all too easily snag a foot or groping hand. Wild swimming, as I say, is a potentially joyous activity, but like walking, it poses very real dangers – and when one adds in certain factors like Sunita's tachycardia, it's hard not to have some sympathy with those who think swimming at the gullet is both extremely foolish and dangerous and should be discouraged at all costs. Leave the gullet by retracing your steps to the waymark at the crossways. Continue straight on through a metal gate, and of a crow's foot of possible paths, choose the middle one, uphill to a view over Eastnall Park. Descend to a lake, surprise the resident spiders by crossing a clanking footbridge, and swinging a sharp left, head diagonally uphill in the direction of the castle. Cresting the field, veer right towards the spire of Eastnor Church. The Nor in Eastnor is derived from the Anglo-Saxon Nyaro or Nyarwe, meaning narrow, confined, or oppressive. East Nyarwe, or the oppressive place to the east, may have been a term coined by the citizens of Ledbury, two miles west of the village, in reference either to an actual prison house or to the vaguely swampish air of quarantine that adheres to the place to this day. Cross the main road and hurry down an avenue of limes. Turn right at the church and left at a footpath sign into open rolling farmland. 
strike on to enter Conagree Wood via a path that soon becomes a steep, sunken track. Keep on where the path gives way to a metalled lane, and turn left at a T-junction to enter Ledbury proper, where our walk ends. Turn right and continue down the home end. While its southwestern outskirts leave a good deal to be desired, at its heart our hometown lends weight to Goethe's felicitous description of architecture as frozen music. Incidentally, does this, I often wonder, make music defrosted architecture? Listening to Bach's Goldberg variations, as I often do on walks when motorway noise and other auditory intrusions preclude the music of silence, it strikes me that it might. Regrettably, plans are afoot to build a relief road to the east of the town, where the proposed new route passes within 20 yards of my garden, blundering through meadows that are home amongst other things to yellowhammers, linnets, voles, skylarks, weasels and deer. In lighter moments, Sunita calls this our chance to sell up now and move to London, but anyone party, as I am, to the disconnect between environmental and planning departments at the local authority level will realise how serious a threat this development poses. Meanwhile, continue up the home end to the station if you plan to catch a train back to Malvern, or, if time is not of the essence, stop in at the retreat for a pint or three of well-kept Reekin's Hammerblow, 6.6%, and a plate of Chef Collins' tasty, if arguably over-buttered, tuna salad sandwiches. From Walk 4, Regency Cheltenham. Sunita and I had been enjoying a late supper of quinoa linguine, simply tossed with artichoke hearts, walnut oil and raisins, when the conversation turned to the tax breaks available to freelancers who, like Sunita, work from home. We could be claiming back far more of the mortgage, she said, with an encompassing flourish of her fork. We had been out for a fact-finding stroll along the proposed route of the new A417, and the first glass of wine, on top of the lateness of supper, had made Sunita light-headedly forthright which would mean we could afford a bigger place, or the same size place, in a more expensive area. Do you see? I did. But pop it, I said, after a lengthy, if not altogether comprehending, examination of the tablecloth. In what sense is this tax deduction justified? As I understand it, you work on holes at David's place. And as to motherless in Calcutta, well, forgive me, but I was under the impression that you'd put that to one side while you rethought the narrative structure. Sunita laid her fork down. I didn't realise you had such a low opinion of what I do. Sweet pea, I said, laying my hand on top of hers, with the mildly unfortunate consequence that the tines of her fork pressed sharply into the venous underside of my wrist. I'm incredibly proud of what you do, and I think your suggestion is intriguing, but you know pedantic old me. I just wanted to make sure I understood. Sunita shrugged and withdrew her hand. I was looking online is the only reason I brought it up. And there were a couple of one-bedroom flats that seemed surprisingly good value for West London. But it doesn't matter. Forget it. Would you really want to live in the city, I said, away from all this? I honestly feel if all I could see from my window was rooftops and cars, I... You... Well, I might feel as if I were missing out on something. Sunita laughed, not particularly kindly, I have to say. Not something you'd ever say of the semi-rural outskirts of Ledbury. There's one thing we have to remember about living here, I said, taking Sunita's hand again. We're stewards. Oh, f*** off. No, I mean it. My father built this house. Is it really so ridiculous to want to pass on his legacy intact to our children, and possibly even their children after them? If we have children. Well, I didn't mean our children necessarily. I meant children in necessary. Future generations. No, you didn't. You meant our children. 
If there was any such nuance or undertone to what I said, well, so be it. You know my feelings on the matter. But I'm not suggesting we go upstairs and procreate this minute. That's just as well. I stood up and moved behind Sunita with the intention of massaging her shoulders. Let's stop this, shall we, Peaches? Why don't we go through to the living room? You can tell me more about these tax breaks while I rub what must be a very sore pair of pixie feet. I had just positioned my thumbs on the upper fibres of Sunita's trapezius muscles when she raised her hands off the table, let out a scream of a length and unselfconscious intensity to make me glad I'd submitted to her earlier demand I shut the patio doors and ran upstairs to the bedroom. In Minoan Crete, a bull cult existed alongside the worship of the labrys, or double-headed axe, wielded by bare-breasted Minoan priestesses, and familiar today as a symbol of female homosexuality. As a wedding present, my sister Barbara, who, living in New Zealand with her partner Danielle, was unable to attend the actual ceremony, FedExed us a labrys in the form of a novelty doorstop whose handy reversibility means that either blade can be stepped on in order to wedge the other up to the requisite width beneath the door. Unfortunately, it was exactly this ease of use that was to lead to my banishment from the house that evening. Sunita was refusing to answer my soft entreaties at the bedroom door, at least until I made the admittedly incautious suggestion that I enumerate for the second time that evening my reasons for wanting to stay at Foxglove Cottage. For Christ's sake, Graham, came Sunita's response. They're going to build a fucking road through it. I am, as the few of you I've had the honour of meeting will know, a man of even temperament. And so it gives me no great pleasure to report what I did next. Kick the carpet, with little or no regard for the consequences, before returning downstairs where I regret to say I grabbed a 35 centilitre bottle of Remy Martin and went out to regain some semblance of self-composure in the garden. With the backrest of my recliner set to maximum horizontality, I lay and watched a moon like a fingernail pairing fall through fast-moving clouds. And despite the chill in the air, I began to doze off, lulled by a tentative sense of my own place in the natural scheme of things, although that may equally, I admit, have been down to the half-bottle of cognac. I was woken a few minutes later by a high-pitched, mournful puling. A fox, I thought. How magical! But then the noise became a word. Help. Help! I turned in my recliner. Sunita was leaning out of the bedroom window, pawing at the brickwork beneath the sill. Somebody please help me, she was saying. I was struck by her beauty, even as my heart barged past my tonsils. I'm coming, I yelled, dashing into the house as mentally I rehearsed my pitched grapple with the intruder, all consciousness of my natural limitations in strength and fearlessness flushed from my mind by a not altogether unpleasant flash flood of adrenaline. Clearing the last three stairs in a single bound, I aimed my shoulder at the bedroom door. It didn't budge. I tried again. Stuck fast. Help! I could hear Sunita crying. He's locked me in! I don't know what to do! It was then that I realised what had happened. In my putty mal of anger at Sunita's actually perfectly justified pessimism, re Foxglove Cottage versus the A417, I had accidentally kicked... Barbara's labrys doorstop with such force that it had wedged itself immovably between the bottom of the door and the raised walnut edge strip separating the laminate floor of the bedroom from the landing carpet. Luckily, I happened to have my Swiss army knife in the breast pocket of my wrinkle-free expedition shirt, cotton polyamide mix, stone grey, now ruined, and simply by using the nail file to sand away at the bottom of the door, I was able in under two minutes to free the labrys and gain access to the bedroom. (laughs) 
It was all quite amusing in retrospect. Stay away from me, Sunita was screaming, still labouring under the absurd impression that in the few minutes between our last cross-exchange and her discovery that the door wouldn't open, I had somehow silently chiselled a hole in it, fitted a mortise lock, and turned the key. It's all right, my sweet, I explained with a chuckle. <laughs> you see, help me, please, God, I'm being attacked! Man and wife rambling teams who have ever got their wires crossed will be tickled to learn that as I moved towards Sunita, arms outstretched, she sprang at me, digging her fingernails into my neck before running downstairs to arm herself, as I was later to discover, with my kitchen devil knife-sharpening steel. All a ridiculous misunderstanding, of course, although by this stage matters had reached such a bewilderingly high pitch of violence and hysteria that I had the conversely reassuring sense that from now on they could only get better. This sense came too late, unfortunately, for Peter Agnew, who, as a good friend and neighbour, felt it his duty to walk the few hundred yards from his enterprising, if architecturally illiterate, barn conversion in his dressing gown and tartan slippers. I didn't invite him in, as it was late, but despite the fact that I was bleeding quite profusely from the neck, Peter was quickly satisfied that it had all just been a bit of a domestic, and that I wasn't about to murder my wife. Although he had, as he meekly admitted, already called the police. Thank you for listening to this Penguin podcast. Nat Segnit's Pub Walks in Underhill Country is published by Fig Tree on the 3rd of February. To read more about the book, please visit www.penguin.co.uk.